welcome to another edition of Surgeons Lives. I'm your host, John Monson. Today, uh, our guest is Dr. Bobby Mukamala. He is a private practice, single-handed ENT surgeon in his hometown of Flint, Michigan, where he's been in practice for the last 23 years. When he started in practice, he started a small hobby of collecting cars, which has clearly got something out of hand because he now has almost 90 cars in his facility. He uses these cars, however, not just for fun, but to uh, undertake a number of charitable ventures to help rejuvenate and support the downtown and community of Flint, Michigan, where, as I say, he was born and brought up. He's also very prominent in uh, ENT circles and has served in a number of leadership capacities in the AMA, so he can clearly do it all. Not only are we going to talk to him today about his collection, but I'm thrilled to say he's going to show us through the collection in the facility that he owns and talk to us about some of the cars that have particular meaning to him. Start just by um, saying a word of introduction to uh, um, my guest today on another edition of Surgeons Lives, Cars and Other Things. Um, I look up uh, Dr. Bobby Mukamala and I discover he is an ENT surgeon. He is a philanthropist and community activist. He is a husband, father, family man, and a car collector extraordinaire. I am in awe of this man um, who clearly has more time in the day than I know uh, I have. Um, and I'm delighted and privileged that you've uh, come on this today to talk about um, your life, your career, your cars, and any other random thing you want to talk about. Um, so welcome. Thank you. Thank you. For, thank you very much, John. It's uh, like this. It's it's uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to talk about what I call my hobby, what my wife calls my addiction. Somewhere in between is probably where reality is. But uh, but you're gonna enjoy the. Looking forward to the conversation. I think I'm yeah. gonna enjoy it. So. Uh, so you 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 obviously don't come with a, a white Anglo-Saxon name. Um, you come with a, a name that's I'm guessing is Indian in origin. Yep, yep, very good guess. Yep, my folks uh, my folks moved here from South India to Flint, Michigan, which is where I am now and where I grew up uh, back in 1970. They're both uh, physicians. Um, did their uh, medical school in India and then came here. Obviously, when this country really needed uh, physicians to fill the gap, especially in places like Flint, Michigan. You know, yeah. It's not exactly booming metropolis. It wasn't then, it isn't now. And and they really relied on IMGs to uh, to be able to fill that void. So my parents moved here. I grew up in town here, made it as far as Ann Arbor for um, medical school and, uh, and undergrad at the University of Michigan and then Chicago for residency. And then came back here 23 years ago with a job, a wife, twin boys um, and a car fetish. <laughs> a fetish but at this point um an unfulfilled fetish um <laughs> at, the, at 23 years ago anyway um, yeah, um yeah. so um uh, can you remember uh not the first car you bought but can you remember what, what's the first car you remember in flint maybe uh, back you know when you were a youngster yeah, you know, we always used to see a lot of the old Cadillacs, a lot of like the Chevy Bel Air was a car that, you know, I remember going to car shows when I was a kid and seeing cars from the 50s. Right. Um, and at the time, they, I mean, they were like carnival rides. They were just so big and, and, and so much 
I mean, just not like the cars that we were driving. You know, my my parents bought a station wagon, and and my sister and I sat in the backseat of the station wagon with our cousins, and that's what we got tooled around in. But but it was never as clean and shiny as the Chevy Bel Airs at the car shows that we used to see around town. Uh, but then you know, just like all of us, when I was a teenager, you know, it was in the '80s, and that's when you know a lot of the cars that were being made then caught my eyes. And I remember. You know, uh, one of my classmates' fathers got the Buick Grand National, and it was just an yeah. incredibly fast car yeah. um, compared to in a, in a bargain compared to some of the like the Porsche 911 at the time, which was another car that I had on my on my poster in my wall um, in my room. Uh, but yeah, those those were the kind of cars that really started to catch my eye as far as cars that I wanted to drive, as opposed to cars that were sculpture um, that I was watching other people drive. Yeah, so, and I, you know, when I look at, and we'll talk about this more in due course, but uh, when we see some of the cars, uh, you know, it's, to call it an eclectic collection, uh, you know, I think is, uh, is, is pretty reasonable. It's quite a spectrum of, you know, German and Italian and American. And would you, would you describe yourself? Would you put yourself into a niche as, you know, a muscle car guy, uh, um, uh, a sports car guy or, or, or do you prefer not to be categorized? You know, it's, it's not, not really a preference. It's just more that over the years, you know, since I was a teenager to now when I'm, I'm quite a bit older than being a teenager, um, there's just different cars that caught my eyes at, at the beginning. It was a lot of the exotic cars and, and imports. And then there was a, a practical reason that I'll describe when we sort of do the walk around about why a lot of them are Mercedes in my collection uh, but a little bit of something for everybody. I mean, sometimes sometimes you're in the mood to go fast. Sometimes you're in the mood to go slow sure. and cruise around. Sometimes you're in the mood to put the top down. Sometimes in Michigan, when it's, you know, five degrees like it is right now, you need uh, you need something with four-wheel drive that can get you back and forth to the hospital and making rounds, regardless of how much snow falls the night before. So, sure. you know, different cars for different moods. And just like everybody, I have a lot of different moods. So uh, tell me a bit more about um, uh, Bobby, the ENT surgeon or ENT. Do you call yourself ENT or head and neck? Uh, Otolaryngology or ENT. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you've been, uh, you know, you're you're not just, uh, and I, I use these words carefully, so don't, uh, you're not just an ENT surgeon who uses the work to fund a hobby, but you're, you know, highly recognized within your specialty and within your, um, you know, the organizational structures, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, did you decide to pursue, um, you know, professional recognition from the very outset or how did that work? No, not really. It was just, it's something that, that I, uh, you know, in, in the practice of medicine, when, uh, when I, you know, started my practice here in town, I naively thought that everything I needed to know, I learned in medical school, um, as far as, you know, treating patients with ear, nose and throat pathology. Um, and my wife and I set up a private practice and, you know, it was not very busy at the beginning. So I saw five patients maybe every day for the first several weeks and months. Uh, but then, you know, you submit the claim to the insurance company saying, okay, well, I did this, this, and the other. And then a few weeks later, I get a denial of payment. Yeah. yeah. Not, nothing new to anybody that's been around the block a few times, but when you're new out of medical school and starting your own practice, paying rent and paying your staff um, by yourself, what do you, it's like, what do you mean? You know, I did everything that I was supposed to do. I documented it. And now you're telling me that I didn't do this or I didn't do that. Some, some minor detail or nuance or it wasn't on the, the claim wasn't filed the right way. 
and all of a sudden I'm getting denial of payment. And my my brilliant idea at the time was that I thought I would go to law school, um, get my law degree, and sue the insurance company in small claims court for each of these denials of payment. And somebody said, uh, you know, you don't need to do that. You can join the medical society and, and they will fight these battles for you. You keep doing what you enjoy doing and, yeah. and let the medical society do that. And and that's how I got involved um, with that aspect. So I never did get my law degree, but instead um, I sort of got involved with the, the state medical society, the first the county level, then the state, and now the national level at the American Medical Association, um, just to try to improve things uh, from the status quo. You know, my, my parents moved here with their diplomas and did their medical training and, and made a life for themselves. And I thought, well, that'd be great. I, I can do the same thing or I can try to leave it a little bit better than I found it. But I try to improve medicine and deal with hassles like prior authorizations and denials yeah. of payment and yeah. like that. Try to system. And that's how I got involved there. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to um, put a downer on uh on the conversation, but um, from 23 years to now, um, um, do you think that the, do you think the life of the practicing surgeon in relation to that business aspect is better or worse than it was 23 years ago? I, I get the sense, I see a lot of, a lot of colleagues, you know, who are coming to the end of their tether in regards to this now, and we all, at least some of us, a lot of us, I think, do try and leave things better than you found them, but it, it's tough, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I guess to, to the blunt answer to your question is no, I don't think things are better. Things are different, uh, yeah. but but not better, right? The fact that uh, if you look at, you know, there's a, there's one graph that I can use to sort of illustrate the, the, what the status of things are. If you rewind this tape 20, 30 years ago, and then look at it now and, and watch that happen, Payment for things other than the actual delivery of healthcare, other than what physicians do, has gone up dramatically. The administrative yeah. cost of healthcare, right? And so yeah. if you look at that graph, the administrative cost of healthcare is going like this. And then at the same time, over the course of 20 to 30 years, actual payment for physician services has gone up by 6% compared yeah. to 60%, right? So, yeah. so no, we haven't gone in the right direction. We're paying for things and not getting better quality because of it. And that's why I think we need to speak up as physicians for why... We need to improve healthcare by the actual delivery of care, not the management of that delivery of care. Yeah, you know, I had a colleague in, well, I used to work in upstate New York, and I had a colleague, a, a heart surgeon there, who's very passionate about this. And, you know, he contends that um, the world began to go bad when the insurance companies were allowed to become for profit. Um, and that was really a, uh, you know, uh, um, a line in the sand in terms of the way the direction of healthcare in the United States was going to go. It's an interesting way of, uh, of, I think there's probably some truth to it, isn't there? For sure. Yep. And, and I'd say even one step um, more straight or more, more blunt than that is that even not for profit entities are not for profit in name only. Yeah. Right? I yeah, mean, so. even the nonprofit hospital systems. Um, they exist for one purpose only, and that's to add to their reserves so they can carry out their mission. But at the end of the day, the day-to-day -day decisions they make, you know, we had, we had a local hospital system that brought in four otolaryngologists under their employment, you know, didn't tell any of us about it, but, but brought them in. And then a year later, they were gone because the bottom line um, wasn't working out to their satisfaction. So it wasn't a mission-driven decision no. to do no. this. The need for yeah. otolaryngology care it was market share. 
I think, as you say, you know, not-for-profit is a tax designation, not a business model. Absolutely, hundred percent. Now, just on that one point, you're 23 years in in uh, in essentially single-handed practice. Mm-hmm. That's pretty unusual nowadays. Most people will have got partners and um, yep. et cetera, et cetera. Um, talk me through that thought process. Yeah, yep. So so I share an office with my wife. And so in that sense, the overhead is a little bit shared um, in that, you know, if I'm at a meeting or I'm doing something like this, at least she can still be at the office um, to justify keeping the office open. And so there's sure. shared expenses there. But uh, But, you know, the decision really was one that's a practical decision. My ability to recruit one of the couple hundred new otolaryngology graduates to come to Flint, Michigan is zero, right? I mean, just absolutely zero. No one's going to come here unless they have roots here. I'm the last person to come into town. And that's because I grew up here. Um, You know, the number of graduates in otolaryngology is barely enough to keep up with those that are going into retirement and those, and they're naturally they're going to go to bigger cities, bigger groups, um, or, to systems that can incentivize their employment. And so that's, you know, that's the main reason that I'm solo is just that, yeah. you know, I'd, it would be very difficult to bring somebody in to join me. Uh, but the other reason is that I decided that, you know, my spare time, I wasn't going to have three offices 20 miles away from each other and build a business. I'm, I'm here to provide for otolaryngology care for the community that I grew up in. Um, and when that care is done at the end of the day, then I'll go wrench on cars um, yeah, as opposed yeah. to going to another office and growing my yeah. otolaryngology business. So multiple reasons that that it is the way that it is. And, and I'm quite happy with it. Uh, later in our conversation, I know you're very passionate about supporting your hometown and um, doing what you can for it. And I would like to give you, I'd like to come back to that and give you the opportunity to to say a little bit about Flint and um, which, you know, has been through the ringer in recent years with all sorts of things. But um, so, but let's, um, uh, let's spend a pivot and, uh, and talk a bit about the car. So you came back 23 years ago, I presume you drove from Chicago, was it? You were coming from? Yep, yep, what, that's what correct. Did you, what did you drive back in? Uh, good question. I think uh, it was my mom's hand-me-down Lexus RX 300 with uh, two car seats in the back for our twin boys. Um, and uh, you, you, know, you can't, um, you, there's no way you'll get sympathy saying you had a hand-me-down Lexus, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Yep, yep. But, uh, you know, those things, as most people know, go forever. I think this thing probably had 150,000 miles on it by the time I got it to, uh, to move all the stuff from Chicago. But, yeah, you know, it's a four-hour drive that we made several times. Um, to move all our, you know, our small condominium in Chicago into our the house that we still live in now, 23 years later, actually. So, you know, my dad was um, my dad was a, a car mechanic when they were called car mechanics, you know, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to whatever they're called now, you know. And um, when I was in medical school, he used to he he gave me cars to drive. Uh, he kind of had a second hand car deal that going on you know and he used to give me cars mm-hmm. drive but there were cars that he did not want seen in the shop um uh, so they were a thing i remember i had a little 850 fiat um and i remember he used to say to me yeah, it's fine but just pump the brakes okay um and then he, <laughs> i remember i had an austin 1100 which was a terrible mm-hmm. car and uh, he he insisted that i carry a can of water in it because he said it tends to you know, so it wasn't a Lexus 300. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Yep. Yep. 
different, different, slightly different generation, and yes, a different uh, reliability index. But exactly. uh, but yeah, that's what that's what we uh, that's what we moved back into town with. So you're back in practice, sitting in the office, waiting for your patients to turn up, as as everyone does when they start in practice. And uh, so, when did you buy the first car, and and what was it? So that's a, that's an interesting question. There's actually a story there, and if you want, I'll, I'll walk over to that car because mm -hmm. it's in the other room. Um, so you know, we bought a, a house that had a three-car garage, and my wife and I had our regular daily drivers. Um, and and right before my residency ended, uh, when I was in Chicago, part of my residency was in uh, Alaska because the natives get a lot of chronic ear disease. Okay. So I was in Alaska, and I was rotating there for four months doing a ton of ear surgery. Meanwhile, my mom gets admitted to the hospital here, our local hospital, where I operated just yesterday, um, with an acute abdomen. So she had some internal bleeding, acute abdomen. They didn't know what was going on, so they were thinking about doing an exploratory laparotomy to sort of find out why she was having this, you know, um, dropping hemoglobin and GI bleeding. So she said, you know, I think I want you to come home in case something happens, you know, because they didn't know what was going on. Yeah. So I flew home from America. I see her in the hospital. Uh, long story short, figured out pretty quickly that this was ischemic colitis uh, because of a side effect of Imitrex, a migraine medication that she was yeah. taking at the time. So it, it caused this intense planknic vasoconstriction, causing this, this mucosal sloughing that looked disastrous on a colonoscopy, uh, yeah. but not actually through and through the wall of the entire bowel. So, so I told him, I said, I think this is her Imitrex. You should stop it. Sure enough, the Imitrex got stopped. Her bowel was fine. No laparotomy, no colectomy, no colostomy. She was extraordinarily grateful that I figured this out. And uh, she decided to buy me a car. And so she bought me this Ferrari Testarossa. So that's this right here. It's a mother of yours. So the, uh, um, you know, she's, uh, she's got a pretty high bar for mothers, you know? I mean, she starts off with a Lexus and then <laughs> opens up with a Testarossa, you know? <laughs> yep, so, so you know, I, uh, I have a little car show that I do as a fundraiser for the community. And so I write these little pieces of paper. And yeah. so this piece of paper basically makes a long story short and says, I saved my mom's colon and she bought me a Ferrari. <laughs> yeah. Well, I statistically so was, speaking, yeah. um, statistically speaking, as a colorectal surgeon, I think I've probably saved more colons than you, and nobody's ever given me a testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be something yep, wrong yep. there. So that was yeah. that was my first. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was my first uh, my first sort of fun car uh, beyond the daily driver, and so. You know, that, I got that, and then you know, I, I bought, I've always liked the 911s, and so I had I bought a 911, um, sold it, regretted it because you know, as soon as those values on those old air cooled 911s started to go up, I realized I should have hung on to that. And so after doing that a few times, um, buying a car, selling it, buying another one, regretting selling the one that I sold, I decided to just buy and hold. So then yeah. I started to just hang on to them and accumulate them more slowly. And so then one led to two, two led to three, and, you know, the garages got filled. I decided at that time to, I figured, okay, well, I have a three-car garage. I'll put another three-car garage on. I'll never have more than six cars. Who's got more than six cars? And so I added a three-car garage. So number seven came, and I put a lift in the garage so that I could put yeah. one underneath the other, thinking, okay, well, I'll never have more than seven. Well, number eight, nine, ten, fast forward the tape, you know, came and, I decided I better get a building. So, you know, several years ago, I bought this building that I'm in now, 
And when space is no longer a limitation, the, uh, the expansion of the collection goes a lot faster. So that's why there's 80 some cars in the collection now. I, that was going to be my question. What is the number now? Um, it's uh, 80. Yeah. And, and you, yeah, you've. Yeah, you've, it's, uh, 83 as far as my wife knows. 84. Um, so, you know, that brings, um, you know, I don't know whether you're familiar with uh, uh, Nick Mason, you know, who's the drummer from Pink Floyd, you know, who has a very large oh, collection okay. of exotic cars. And he's, he's, been a car guy all his life um and mm -hmm. um you know had things has a famously has a 250 gto ferrari and um some bagattis and etc etc um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. wonderful guy wonderful collection true true knowledge and and passion for the sport but he, mm -hmm. over the years he's always given multiple interviews and people interviewers have said to him so you know how did this come about and um you know and he, he he makes the very simple simplistic statement that you know well the answer to that is obvious i made a lot of money and so i was able to buy cars etc um mm -hmm. and, and of course you know when you when you get to five or six or seven it's um you know it's 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 reaching an interesting stage but when you get to 83 um or it, you know that sort of number with your own um, multifaceted building it becomes now um just just existing whether you never drove any one of them at all it's mm -hmm. an expensive business to do that i mean now you're committed to to doing this um yeah. and um you know where do you go with that story yeah you know it uh you're absolutely right and and just maintaining because I don't I don't want a, a collection of decaying automobiles, right? I don't want to yeah. be the person that bought a really great condition old Cadillac and then didn't do anything to it to maintain it and slowly it fell apart. I don't want to be that guy. And so now with 83 cars, that's you know 83 batteries, 83 times four, you know, a number of tires and and you know the wiring and and you know we're in Michigan and you're right now inside this building. It's about 50 degrees and you know, in the summertime, because there's no air conditioning, sometimes it'll get up to north of 85, 90 degrees. So temperature fluctuations, expansion, contraction of part of materials and things like that, that takes a toll. And so, you know, that's why I, you know, that, that's why there's people here in this building right now that help me to maintain them. I, I literally now, because I don't have the time to drive everything as much as they need to be driven, or at least start everything in the wintertime as much as it needs to be yeah. started pay people to do that just to maintain the, the fleet, so to speak. So yeah, yeah. not all, uh, as you suggested, it's not all just enjoyment. Um, yeah. There's maintenance required to, to be responsible and be a responsible collector. And that's, no, that's sure. what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, you know, um, you know, your type of job or my type of job, e even if you do have the skills um, and I, I have modest, minimal skills, um, I have some, but I, I don't have the time to, um, you know, to do it. So um, I yeah. got to make sure that, uh, you know, I find some way of doing that. And, and you know, I, I my cars are uh, basically all Jaguars. Um, but um, even that is, you know, you, you got to send, it's the same way as, you know, if you want your uh, ear fixed, you go to an ENT surgeon, you know, you don't go to a general internist or whatever so you got you want a jag fixed you go to a jaguar guy you know uh etc so yep, yep yeah 
Um, you, you said there, you know, uh, you, you know, it's not just a matter of enjoyment and popping along and driving. So how do you decide on, a, um, you know, what, what are you going to drive today? I mean, or what are you going to drive next Friday or whatever? And, and are there, there, there must be cars that you drive more often than others. Yeah. Uh, winter time or season has a lot to do with yeah. that. So, you know, I, a lot of these cars that you see here, they're not cars that are ever going to see salt of yeah. a Michigan road in the winter time. And so once, once the, once it starts snowing, most of these cars just get started and moved around the parking lot, but they're not my regular drivers. Yeah. Um, I, I, our, our daily drivers, uh, my wife and I both drive Tesla model S's. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's one of these things that I think that, uh, you know, environmentally responsible thing to do. And our commute is, you know, we have three area hospitals that we operate at in our, in our office. It's none is more than six or seven miles away from the yeah. other spot. And, uh, and so, yeah, so our daily drivers through the winter time and, you know, when we're, when we need to go from surgery in the morning to office at, at 9am and then home um, for a meeting and, you know, at 4pm, it, it's not the time to worry about, okay, is this belt yeah. going to break or is this tire not inflated properly? So our regular drivers are those Teslas. Uh, but then in the, in the summertime or, you know, spring through the fall, if I'm not in a rush for time or certainly on the weekends, I'll drive three or four different cars in a day, you know, yeah. run an errand in the morning with one, bring it home, you know, wipe it down, just check a few things, bring it back, pick another one up. Uh, but yeah, so it's a concentrated driving experience because it's seasonal. Um, yeah. And I end up driving several cars a day. So it's about um, you. What do you, you have about six months of the year where you can drive outside something like that? Uh, yeah, I probably start around April and yeah. then it goes through Halloween in October. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, when you're, as you say, you've, you've, you know, concentrated when you're driving three cars a day, do you find yourself driving the same theme each day? Uh, or, you know, do you jump from a two seater to a four by four to a, a big uh, sailing boat, you know, etc. How do you, does it, is there any, any sort of commonality to that? Yeah, a lot of it is, uh, is um, weather dependent. Um, and also, yeah, I mean, yeah, just very much weather dependent. So, you know, the thing with 80 some cars is I don't bother trying to make sure that the air conditioners work on all 83 cars <laughs> because I'll, I'll, I'll get them running great. And then I won't drive them for six months. And, the refrigerant will leak out or it won't be running or it won't be as cold as I would like yeah. it to be on a 90 degree day. So, you know, spring and fall are the times where I really sort of enjoy because I can drive anything because I don't yeah. mind being in 50 degree, 60 degree weather. It's just the 90 degree weather, the summer that, you know, it top down is not really a great option then. No. Um, so a lot of it is weather dependent, um, but also just, you know, some of it is discipline. Like there's some cars that I just have to drive, even though they're kind of a pain in the neck to drive relative to something that's more modern. But it's right. just the discipline of saying, okay, well, I haven't driven this, you know, there's a, there's a Volvo P1800 back there that, yeah. uh, that you know, just doesn't get driven enough because it's not quite as easy to drive, but it's important that it gets driven. And so yeah. sometimes it's, it, it seems foolish to say it, but it's a little more work than it is leisure to sure. drive some of these cars yeah well lead me uh lead me to some some of the things you think you want to lead me to i see you're walking past what looks like a series two e-type uh yeah where's where that right back there is that what you're seeing behind me it's, oh yeah it's either a two or a three um, yeah that's a three yep that's a 1974 a um, yeah. let me uh let me flip this around so i okay. can talk while i'm uh, sure 
Yep. Yeah. So this was my, my 74 E type that, uh, that I happened to, I was driving with the kids in the back seat uh, many years ago. And uh, this was at a local gas station right down the street from my house in Flint, Michigan. And uh, I said, well, that's kind of a strange car to be for sale from a gas station. And I walked in and I said, uh, you know, what's the story with this? And it turns out it was the past mayor of Flint um, that was selling it. It was his own personal car. He owned that property and owned the gas station. And he was known to be uh, um, an interesting businessman, one um, that uh, perhaps sometimes with questionable ethics. And so I didn't want to get into a negotiation with him on it. He wanted, uh, uh, you know, I think 35000 for it. And I thought that was more than I wanted to pay. And so I said, you know, if you're willing to sell it for 25, I'll buy it. Don't even have to drive it. And uh, but if not, you know, have a nice day. I'll see you around. So I walked out and I, get, I got all the way back to the car. And then this guy comes running out to find me and said, the mayor would like to talk to you again. Um, and so I went in there and he said, fine, I'll take your 25. And so so I bought this Jaguar retype from him for 25,000 at the gas station in Flint, Michigan. And, uh, you know, and as you know, this is and I see one behind you there on your table. and This is right up your alley. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, this is just a beautiful car. Yeah. Yeah, I have a, um, it's, that's a series one. I have a series one uh, drop hand, which is, uh, it's actually Cotswold Blue, but. Um, got yep. Um, yep. And then I have, um, I've got a, a, um, a coupe as well, a series one coupe, which is the one in the picture as well as the model. So. Um, yeah, I've got, a, I've got the two plus two here also. So there's a. Yeah, I used to. Um, I used to do. Uh, I used to have a, a two plus two. Um, there is there. There's my two plus two there. Uh -huh. um, yep, yep. That I did. Uh, I took on a rally. Somebody told me it was a good idea to take it on a on a <laughs> on a Pyrenees rally. It was at that point that I discovered that E types don't have brakes that work after about an hour. You know. Yeah. This uh, this E type here has got an interesting story. Also, I, I as I mentioned, I was involved with the American Medical Association. I still am. I serve on that board, and I was chair of that board last year. Early on, I was in a, a meeting where I was just a delegate from uh, an alternate delegate from the state of Michigan. You know, 20 years ago, and sometimes those meetings you get stuck on trying to figure out where the comma in a particular resolution should go, or you know what the conjunction should be. And and so I sort of drifted off onto eBay, and I happened to see this car, and the auction was going to end within the hour, and it was during the meeting, and I so I put in a bit of I think it was about 17,000 for this car thinking there's it's going to sell for that. And by the end of the meeting, I was the proud new owner of a two plus two E type Jaguar. <laughs> and that's automatic that one. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. In fact, all of them are automatic. Um, it, I'm not too picky about, you know, those sorts of things. To me, it's more about the, the styling of it yeah. than it is the, what motor is under the hood or, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. only reason I ask is because, you know, the two plus two, series three automatic is unquestionably the orphan child you know um exactly. so, so exactly. they're fantastic value um as a consequence yeah. because you know they're great now this on the other hand um looks a different uh, kettle of fish yep yep this this is a 190e 2.316 valve um yeah and so it's you know it's my understanding is this is what led bmw to start their M program to keep up with Mercedes, who is starting to make their cars a little bit more performance oriented. So this car is what sort of catalyzed BMW to start their M program. Uh, but, but again, you know, kind of like, you know, it's similar to an M3 probably in its driving experience, but this was Mercedes entry into, 
into that world. Yeah, and there's another interesting story about them. You know, the, the cylinder head was done for Mercedes by Cosworth. Um, yeah, Cosworth, exactly. That's yeah. what they call it, the Cosworth edition, yep. Yeah, and um, this car was the car that brought Ayrton Senna to attention. Mercedes had, I think it was in Hockenheim in Germany, I think, some circuit in Germany. They had a, a, a one-make race. They got, you know, whatever it was, 25 of those cars together, and they got a series of famous racing drivers and young up-and-comers um, to race in this, which, you know, is this something that's happened over the years? And Nicky Lauda was in the race, and huh. uh, Ayrton Senna was stuck in one of these cars, and... Mm. Um, and uh, when nobody had heard of him, um, he yeah, was, yeah. He, you know, Nicky was a three-time world champion at that stage, and he re he came blasting through the field, and um, I think he won the race. But at the end of that, by the end of that race, the name Ayrton Senna was who the hell is this kid? You know, <laughs> um, so it was in yep. that car. You know, gotcha, gotcha. Yep, yep. So yeah, there's. Uh, let's see here. What else we got? So this was, you know, this was an interesting acquisition. This is the Tesla Roadster. And yeah, and, uh, it's famous because there's one orbiting the Earth. They launched one in the space. Yeah. Yep. So there's uh, so the story that I tell about this one that's on this piece of paper is uh, this is a picture of the one that's actually in orbit. And uh, you can find <laughs> that picture online. So my son, uh, who's a biomedical engineering student, is very much into technology. And he said, oh, dad. We need to get this because it was a friend of mine's car. And uh, I said, well, you know, son, I got enough cars. I got enough projects. Maybe we shouldn't add another one. He's like, oh, no, dad, this is going to go up in value. And sure enough, within a couple of years, they put one into outer space and the, and the value pretty much doubled. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now you're passing by uh, another car that is kind of the orphan child of Ferrari. Exactly. Grossly under yep. underestimated. Yes, the Mondial is, uh, you know, and there, a lot of these cars have movie references. And so when I have, I have fundraisers here for different institutions, and I usually sort of reference what movie it showed up in. And so this is a picture of Al Pacino uh, in Scent of a Woman when he's blind and he's test driving the Mondial in the streets of Manhattan. So, <laughs> and of course, this is the uh, Magnum PI Ferrari, yeah. the 308. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and there's, there's uh, Tom Selleck up there. Yeah. And then people always ask me which one's the most valuable car in the collection. And so this is the uh, the 911 Turbo or the 930 um, Turbo Slant Nose um, yeah. from 1987. Or sorry, 1985. And uh, so this is the one that's probably gone up in value the most. Um, and so uh, is, it, it's gone up in value the most, but you would say it's probably the, the most valuable in terms of actual number of the lot? <laughs> Yep. Yep. I think, uh, you know, this is a car that I bought probably 15, 20 years ago for maybe in the mid 20,000 range. Yeah. And it, it peaked a few years ago, they were selling for over 200,000 and now it's kind of dropped to about the 180, 190 range. Yeah. But yeah, probably the most single, most valuable car in the collection. Yeah. 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 And then this is uh 928. 928 yeah. Made Great famous cars. by Tom Selleck when he, uh, when he dropped it into Lake Michigan in the movie risky business. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I, I speculate. So cars that not necessarily guaranteed to go up in value, but I think eventually will. So this Porsche Boxster, I think, yeah. is one that will likely go up in value. And then there's these oddball cars. This is a Cadillac Alante that was 
designed by a company called uh, Pinaferina that also designs Ferraris. And so you'll see that uh, little um, emblem here on the side of the car. So this was a car that Cadillac made um, in conjunction with Pinaferina. So the body was done in Italy and then they flew it over on a 747 to have the engine done here. Obviously not the most uh, economical way to make a car and that's why they never really no. made money. But, uh, and then every now and then I, <laughs> I do something silly. And so yeah. this is uh, a 1947 American LaFrance fire engine that was for sale locally. And I had the space in this building and my kids were like, oh, dad, can we get it? Can we get it? And I said, sure, guys. So, so we, now we own this American LaFrance fire engine that comes Beautiful. with, with it's the suits a... and the helmets and, and all the equipment there. So, yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a real showstopper, isn't it? You know? Yeah, the kids love it. And I'm not, the other thing is I'm not particular about, oh, don't touch the car, please. And yeah. don't do this, yeah. don't do that. And so this is one that the kids put on the helmets and the outfits and they get in there and they take their pictures and they get up there on the ladders and sure and yeah. doing that. So is that a 240Z, yeah. uh, 280SL, and then a 190SL. You know, when I when I missed the market and getting a gull wing for dirt cheap, which I don't know that they were ever dirt cheap, mm. I figured, well, I'll get the next one. And so then I got this 190SL instead. And, and they've, they've gone insane recently in value. Yeah. Yep, they sure have. They sure have. This is a, a Jaguar that you probably recognize, the XJ6, yeah. which was peculiar because it had two gas tanks. So I had one of these a long time ago. Yeah. And, uh, and there was a little bit of rust um, on the car that I used to have, and it was right yeah. here. And so the local body shop started to put some rivets in there, and they riveted right into the gas tank. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. then I had a gas leak in that one. That one was not a good out. idea. You know? Exactly. Yep. Yep. And uh, yeah, another, another XJS there. So people yeah. ask me what's my favorite car. And uh, I oftentimes tell them that if I had to get rid of all of them and keep one till the very end, it would probably be this 1959 Corvette, uh, just because it's it's like sculpture. I mean, the lines on it are just gorgeous. Yeah, that was that's definitely one of my uh, standard questions. So that that's you've just answered that. It's that one there, and they are timeless classic, aren't they? Yes, they are. It's just it's like artwork, even if it wasn't an automobile. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. just I think like, like the lines on it are just are are just beautiful. Yeah. So I mentioned that I have a lot of Mercedes. A friend of mine from childhood opened a Mercedes BMW repair shop south of here about an hour. And uh -huh. I helped him set up his shop. Um, he loaned him some money to do that. And so he would repay me by servicing cars, but he only really worked on Mercedes at the time. And so I would always, I accumulated a lot of the Mercedes that I liked over the years. So the 560 SL, the 560 SEC, yeah. the 500E. The 500E is kind of a rare Porsche Mercedes collaboration. Um, the CLK, you know, and then the, the one down there at the end is not really a collectible Mercedes, but an interesting story. So you remember when, uh, when not this recent time around, but but a decade ago when gas was about four fifty a gallon the first time around, and everybody was buying Priuses and that sort of thing, I wanted to also uh, be off the grid and not have to pay that much for gas. So I bought this diesel Mercedes uh. that I modified, and so it runs on vegetable oil. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Part oh, of my wife and I, uh, my wife and I, as part of the revitalization of downtown Flint, um, have opened up some restaurants in downtown Flint, trying to make it a destination again after having it sort of um, go through the decline of the automotive industry in the '80s and '90s. So, because we owned restaurants, I had access to to um, vegetable oil, and so I would get the used cooking oil from the yeah. hospitals and the restaurants, and I put it in that Mercedes, and uh, 
and I was off the grid as far as buying gasoline or diesel uh, for about a year. The worrying thing about this tour is the number of cars that you have that I used to own as well. Oh, yeah. interesting. <laughs> um, it's um, like I had a 560 SEC and oh, several yeah. of those Mercedes that you have there. I have, but you know, yeah. had a two plus two Jag and all that sort of stuff. I've never actually owned a Corvette. Um, oh, okay. And um, and I've never had an electric car. Um, uh, which I'm kind of you know mulling over, and here you have an Irish car in front of you there. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So this is the uh, the DeLorean that uh, you know, Back to the Future made famous. So even this new generation of kids that never knew who John yeah. DeLorean was or anything remember it for the movie. So it's fun to watch them feel like they're getting into a time machine here. And yeah, but so uh, you 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 mentioned the the um, Series One Corvette would be what you would keep if you had to sell everything. Um, uh, if you um, if I, if I asked you what was the car that you most regret selling, um, what would that be? Well, so I, I went through that cycle a few times. I, uh, yeah. I, I had a, I had a, a manual black 280 SL Mercedes, which was just a rare, but beautiful car. And so yeah. I sold it. But then as you saw back there, I reacquired another 280 SL. I used to have another black 560 SEC and sold it and regretted it. So I've never actually sold a car and regretted it and still regret it because I always reacquired it based on that regret. And so now I don't sell anymore, so I don't have to go through that again. So you, um, you know, you've, to categorize it crudely and unfairly, you have, you know, a, vo a volume, 80 cars, 80 plus cars and, various items, you know, where your, your biggest value car is a couple of hundred K. Correct. Um, yep. yep. As opposed to say having four cars that are worth a million or so, you know, um, right. yep. um, so, you know, did you ever, were you ever tempted to, you know, go to, go to Pebble beach and, you know, bid on the 5 million Ferrari or something? No, not really. And, and the reason is I, I consider myself sort of a, a bottom feeder slash bargain hunter, right? So <laughs> I want to be the guy, I want to be the guy that finds the company like Google and buys that stock at $50 a share instead of trying to acquire it after, after, you know, it's already appreciated. So same with these cars. I, you know, like for example, you don't see a, uh, a gullwing in here. Right. You, you, yeah. There's some cars that you just don't see because, the, you know, I've, I've lost like, for example, the E30 M3. Yeah. A car that definitely belongs in this collection. I love it. I would love to have it. But the, it's already appreciated so much that I'm not going to chase it. Right. Yeah. So instead, yeah. I have the I have the E36 M3 instead. And so, yeah. So but, uh, but yeah, you have, that, a, yeah. you have that discipline. I mean, you've decided I'm not going to go there. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Just because. You know, I would rather I would rather uh, not chase something that's gone up in value, but instead just buy it smartly. So and that's partly how I, I justify it and get along with my wife still, despite this hobby, is that uh, I can show her that, you know, that that 911 over there, the slant yeah. nose that I got that for this number and now it's worth this. And that's a good investment. And so yeah. even if I have to, you know, like the repair bills, as you referenced earlier, 
Yeah. You know, those are things that, that despite those repair costs and maintenance costs, um, it maintains value. Of course, the, 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 the key to doing that uh, it has been your decision not to sell. Um, Correct. You know, um, uh, you know, most people sell because they don't have the space. Um, um, yeah. and yep. At least that's one reason anyway. But, uh, you know, you have the luxury of being able to keep and sit on them. And so they will increase in value, as, as you point out. Um, exactly. And, and, you know, the, the final disposition of this collection is my kids will decide when I'm six feet under what they want to do with oh, this sure. collection. Yeah, yeah. Just, just the, like um, hopefully my... What's the worst car you ever bought or the biggest disappointment? The one you, when you got it, you thought, wow, this is terrible, this thing. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. There was, there've been a couple that, uh, that were more trouble than they were probably worth. Okay. So for example, I have, uh, I have in the shop right now, a Range Rover, um, classic, um, from 1994 that yeah. I've always liked. I've always liked. Uh, and I bought it and it was a, it was a project car when I bought it, but it was a good deal. It was a Southern car, no rust. And it's been in the shop for the better part of a year, getting it to be worthy of putting in this room with the rest of these cars. And so, you know, and, and so what I learned from that is I'm pretty much done with buying project cars. You know, I'll do little things, little repairs, maintenance, but not an entire you know, do you, car. Like um, do you upgrade? stuff you know like put better brakes on or better you know five speed really, box not really just because you know it, you know one i want all i need to do is to be able to drive it yeah. um when i want to drive it right so if it's good enough to drive on a saturday or sunday morning it's fine with me i'm not you know it's not one particular car that i need to have maximized yeah. It's cars that, you know, pretty much how they came off the factory line, I'm perfectly fine with, unless it's a safety issue. Yeah, then yeah, I'll upgrade yeah. it if it's, if I think it's going to leave me stranded or something like that, um, then I'll upgrade it. But, and, uh, and you know, when you, when you, when you're driving at the weekend, uh, um, you know, do the, is the population of uh, Flint, you know, terrified? Oh my God, Dr. Bobby's out in the cars again. Um, or do you just cruise along taking it easy? Oh, it's, it's very easy to cruise around here. They, you know, it's a small enough town where a lot of them will recognize and they'll be like, oh, that's a, that's a interesting Bentley. It must be one of Dr. Bobby's cars because it's unique to see a car like this on yeah, the streets of yeah. Flint, Michigan, uh, but not, not in a, not in a way that's threatening or dangerous in any yeah. way, but, uh, but in a way where you get a lot of honks and smiles and waves and, you know, people yeah. appreciating seeing cars that they wouldn't otherwise see, you know, when they're driving around it's town. Just, so you're, you're not a, you're, you're not a foot to the floor guy. No, no, just uh, just cruising around. I mean, some of these things need to be exercised, like like that twelve cylinder Ferrari over there is probably one that if yeah. you're cruising around at twenty five miles an hour, it's just not going to be very great for that car. You need to open it up, and so so yeah. then I do. Yeah. You know, I'll get on the expressway and I'll open it up and uh, and really sort of put it through put it through its paces. Yeah, and you you walk past um, a car I used to have, which is um, you know probably the nicest sounding car when it starts up, which is the Maserati Gran Turismo. Ah, yes, yes, yep. So this 100%. was uh, this car. Yes, I love this car, and uh, my son loves this car. So I I told my kids when they were in grade school that if they got uh, fifteen hundred on their SAT or uh, got uh, above a 34 on their ACT, 
that I would buy them the car of their choice, right? When they got their driver's license. And so my one, you know, they, they both did well. And one of my sons did that. And he said, I'd like this uh, Maserati, but he is a terrible driver. And so there was no way that I was going to get him this car until he got some years under his um, belt and, and miles under his belt. And so then he finally seemed worthy of having this. And so I bought it for him right when he went to college. So he's never really driven it regularly, but he drives it when he comes back into town. And, you know, um, you and I will both for the purpose of the uh, purpose of our interview today, agree to accept that story. Um, as opposed to you just deciding you wanted a Maserati Gran Turismo. <laughs> no, that was his choice. He, uh, he saw a picture of it and he said, uh, that's what I'd like. And, uh, and so that's how we ended up with it. But... So as you walk past the um, El Camino there, just tell me, um, tell me about this unusual relationship you have with the town of Flint and, and your passion to, as you say, revitalize. Yes. So, you know, my, you know, again, my, my parents moved here in the early 70s and, and the town has been, um, you know, good to my family. The fact that, that they could come here, you know, with a just a minimal grasp of English job contract at the local hospital. And my dad did his radiology residency here. My mom did her pediatrics residency and, and made it. They opened their own. My mom opened her own practice and was busy. My dad continued to practice radiology for 50 years after he arrived here, just retired in 2020. Um, that just a lot of uh, gratitude for being able to do that in this community. And so that's why we decided to come back. I sort of dragged my wife a little bit, kicking and screaming from Chicago. Um, she would say that I impregnated her with our twins and then dragged her here to Flint um, <laughs> to raise them. But uh, not, not quite, not Where quite. She, is she's from Chicago? Uh, no, she's from uh, Southeast Michigan, about an hour south of here, but she uh, just loved Chicago. And, yeah, yeah, you know, being yeah. an OBGYN, her residency was four years, mine was five. Yeah. So she had that extra year to start practice in Chicago, and uh, she really loved it. But then, you know, again, being close to grandparents with the twins was going to be sure. nice. So that's why we sure. moved over here. Yeah. Um, so um, you, you seem to do a... I mean, you, you do a lot of stuff. I You know, I've seen, you know, pictures of you... Um, you know, cleaning stuff up to, as you just said, you know, opening restaurants and um, fundraisers and one thing or another. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of effort and commitment and um, um, for a community. I mean, what what do you see? I mean, tell me a bit about Flint. I mean, Flint is how big is Flint and uh, what are its challenges? Because you you pointed out earlier that. Yeah, and I have worked in cities where you can't recruit people to, you know, so I, I understand that yeah. when I worked, I worked in England in a city in the north of England um, that, you know, was not somewhere that people went to, you know, um, and recruiting there is yeah. not easy. So tell me, there must be something good about Flint because you've been there forever and, you know. So what's, what's amazing about Flint is that is the ease of life here. Um, and so my wife and I, again, we share an office. It's, you know, about a seven minute drive from home. There's never any traffic. And so we start our office. I, you know, I had patients, um, you know, I started 830 in the morning. My last patient of the morning is scheduled at 1145. By 1205, I'm in the car going home for lunch every day. Wow. And I have lunch every day. And at uh, one o'clock, I get back in the car. And at 115, I start my afternoon office. I mean, that's how it's been for 23 years. That's not something you can do in a big city. 
Um, that all three hospitals, and when my wife was doing OB before she stopped doing that, the deliveries, you know, she could be at any hospital within 10 minutes, right? All three hospitals in the area. Two of them, you don't even have to get on the expressway to get to. And so, you know, yesterday I had 12 surgeries at our local hospital. And uh, my first case was at 6.45. I left my house at 6.15 and I was logged on to our electronic health record, Epic, at uh, 6.25 in the hospital doing my H&P updates. And my first case was at 6.45 and, and number 12 was done by 9.45. And at 10.15, I'm seeing my first patient in the office. Wow. And so they, you know, they, they give me three ORs to operate in. Uh, because all my cases are short and I start at 645 and nobody else wants to start at 645. So, so yeah. it's, there, there's benefits of being in the small town. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to think how, uh, how, how difficult might it be for me to retrain as an ENT surgeon? Um, <laughs> as, you know, I, I yeah. spent um, on, on Tuesday, I spent almost all day doing a complex multiple re-exploration abdomen with multiple people you know uh, involved etc and it, it's the antithesis yeah. of that description you just gave me you know exactly yep yep now again i'm not doing advanced head and neck or anything like that the university of michigan my alma mater is right down the road and you know it's 45 minutes 50 minutes for a patient to get down there for you know the the stage three stage four larynx cancer i mean i'll stage it we'll tee it up we'll We'll sure. get it all ready to go and then send them down there for definitive, you know, surgical excision or, or radiation chemo. Um, so I, I feel like I'm, I'm enjoying being a general otolaryngologist in my, in the town that I grew up in. So um, and I, I'm going to ask you to send me a few links of things that we'll put on the bottom of the, of the YouTube things <laughs> or, or, you know, city links and stuff like that. So can, um, Sure. Use the opportunity to publicize a few things that you do. Um, sure, uh, that'd, be, that'd be great. Thank you. Um, yeah, so this, this one always gets a lot of questions. This yeah, is the, uh, the Airstream. Airstream camper. Yeah. Yeah, 1965 Airstream. This is, uh, I happened to be driving by it and it was for sale at, a, at just in somebody's driveway here in the city of Flint in downtown. And uh, it was like $4,000. And I thought the idea that you could get an Airstream for that cheap and it was in very good condition. And uh, I, I never grew up camping. We went camping in it once so far, uh, but it just, it looks good sitting here. And, and in the nice, on a nice spring day, I'll, sometimes I'll go in there and I'll take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> so um, do you have, um, uh, do you have any bucket list cars that are, you, you know, one day before this is all over, before they put me in my box, I'm, I gotta, gotta, gotta get. Well, there's definitely some gaps that, I mean, there's some things that are missing in this collection. So I don't have a Mustang. Um, I, I did I did get a, uh, a Mach 1 Mustang that's uh, just getting some interior work done. But a 65 Mustang convertible is one that I've always sort of liked and yeah. would love to add to the collection. So, you know, that that's one that I would add. Um, there's one that, there's one that unfortunately I will never add, and that's an Audi. And, and that's sort of an odd thing to say because there's Audis that I really like. Um, but the reason for that is that I had an Audi A8 uh, that had a premature failure of a head gasket at 40,000 miles that was just out of warranty. And Audi said, I'm sorry, we can't help you. And I said, you know, I'm 25, 26 years old. I'm going to be buying a lot of cars before I retire. 
but if you don't if you don't make this right, I'm never going to buy an Audi. And and so they escalated it, but they still came down on the side of, well, I'm sorry, we can't help you. And so now here I am 25 years later and I don't own an Audi and I don't intend to buy one. <laughs> Sticking to your I, principles. I, I appreciate them, but, uh, but I, there won't be one in here. <laughs> Unless, of oh. course, somebody high up in Audi comes and tours my collection and say, hey, you know, remember that, that mistake we made? We'd like to make it right by you. Yeah. Then I'd be willing to listen. <laughs> so, yeah, and if you, if you tell the story often enough, um, they, they may well listen one day. Exactly, you know? exactly, yep. <laughs> speaking of which, uh, speaking of which, I'll show you how I uh, decorated uh, some of the room. Uh, this, is, this is sort of a staging room where, where we pull in through the overhead door, but, but up here you'll see pictures of some of the uh, early pioneers within General Motors. Um, this was an exhibit that was at our local library because General Motors started in Flint, Michigan. Yeah. And then it moved to Detroit. And so when it was in Flint, um, there was uh, uh, Alfred P. Sloan, who was one of the early folks at General Motors. Um, there's a Sloan Museum, and this was one of the exhibits from Sloan Museum. And they were going to, the exhibit was gone and they were going to throw it away. And, and I said, well, this is something that you shouldn't throw away. I'd be willing to buy it. So I bought these posters. And so this gentleman right here is a gentleman by the name of Harlow Curtis. He was the president of General Motors in the 1950s, Time Magazine Man of the Year in 1956. He started the Corvette Project. And what's most interesting is that the house that Nita and I live in was Harlow Curtis's home. Oh. And so he was the first owner, and now we are the third owner. We live in Harlow Curtis's house, and now his, uh, his face adorns my car collection. And uh, the other one is Sloan, is that correct? Yeah, Alfred P. Sloan um, yeah. was also uh, uh, instrumental in the founding of General Motors, like Sloan Kettering. Same yeah, exactly. Sloan. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And another philanthropist. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So, you know, some people um, uh, are big into, you know, again, bucket list uh, journeys and trips and things like that. Um, um, I'm I'm not necessarily I don't, I don't necessarily have a list of bucket list trips, but uh, for example, last year I, when I finished the build of the of the E-type coupe, mm -hmm. um, it was in California, and I was in Orlando, and it was my son's 40th birthday, so we both flew to San Francisco and drove from San Francisco to Orlando. Um, oh wow, in the that's e great! You know, we took two weeks to do that. Do you have a is there some trip that you want to do in a, you know, a bucket list type thing? And if so, what car would it be in? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I've always wanted to have the time uh, and the leisure to be able to, you know, drive from here to California and, and see, you know, everything from Mount Rushmore to, to Zion National Park and everything yeah. in between and make that trip. Um, I don't know that it's ever going to happen, but I'm still holding out hope that it will happen. And I'm hoping that my kids won't be so busy with their own lives that they will be able to join us and do that trip. As far as what car, it'll probably be something that's more practical. I don't know that it's going to be a convertible because it will probably be four of us doing it. Um, and so it might be it might be an SUV. I'm not I'm not even sure. Heck, maybe we'll even tow the Airstream behind the uh, the Jeep Grand Wagoneer. And, uh, and and do it that way. That would be fun. That would be iconic. 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, there. There's I don't think outside of a modern car, you know, there's there's no perfect uh, car for this because if you, you know, you go in a convertible, you take, you know, it's you got all the issues with that. Um, ours was a fixed head, and you know, by the time we got to uh, Texas and Mississippi, uh, the heat, I can tell you, was quite an issue. Um, yeah. As you know, yeah. any E-type Jag is just a big heat machine. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, ninety degree heat and ninety percent humidity is, um, you know, not the best deal. <laughs> yep, so. exactly, exactly. All right. Well, so listen, I'm so pleased that you, um, uh, I think we've come to the end of our time, but it's just been a fantastic um, opportunity to chat to you, um, see your uh, remarkable collection. There's no end to it, um, it <laughs> seems. And I'm sure there is no end to it because 80 is just before 90 and 90 is almost 100. Um, I'm sure that's gonna be the case in, in the next few years. Um, I, uh, I, I just got to say for everyone's benefit, um, your commitment to the community is, is amazing. And, um, uh, you, you know, it's, uh, everyone should at least do something. I, I, you know, I did the charity trip driving across, but it's not in your league. So, um, hats off to you and everything, everything that you do. Um, will when this appears, um, when people, when this is on uh, YouTube, um, uh, people just have to look below and the links and uh, Bobby's links regarding everything he does and um, and uh, Flint, etc. will be there. And of course, as for everyone, um, if you like what you see, press subscribe and like and send us your comments and tell us, do you know of another Bobby Mukamala somewhere that we should be talking to who's an even bigger collector of uh, of cars uh, somewhere around the u.s or indeed worldwide where we're meeting people from uh, england and australia and around the world so so thanks again bobby wonderful um to talk to you and um, um wish you very best with uh, all your adventures thank you john very much enjoyed the uh, conversation and the walks down memory lane and, and hearing your stories as well appreciate the opportunity